bandwidth for changelog is provided by fastly learn more at fastly.com i'm max howell and you're listening to the changelog Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 232, and today Jared and I are talking to Max Howe, famously known as the creator of Homebrew. It's been more than six years since Max has been on the show. We talked about his tweet. It was heard around the world from that time he interviewed with Google, but didn't get accepted. The creation of Homebrew, the naming process, as well as the difficulty of letting go. We also talked about his passion for the Swift programming language and his work on Swift Package Manager while at Apple. We have three sponsors, Code School, TopTile, and our friends at GoCD. First sponsor of the show is our friends at Code School, and this year is a great year to give a gift of code. If you're scrambling to find the perfect gift for a friend, loved one, buddy, friend, coworker, whatever, somebody out there needs to learn how to code, and you want to give that gift to them, give them access to Code School's entire library of courses. They've got more than 60 courses and 2,700 coding challenges all wrapped up into one single awesome gift. You can give a gift of one month for $29 six months for $99 or a full year for $189, a savings of 46%. Head to codeschool.com. The offer is available until Friday, January 6, 2017. The offer starts Monday, December 12th. So very soon, if you're listening to this before that date, once again, codeschool.com, give the gift of code and now onto the show. All right, we're back with Max Howe. And Max, wow, it's been a long time. Episode 35, Jared. I mean, this is basically a lifetime ago. 2010. Jeez. Six years. What's wrong with us, Max? Why don't we have you back on sooner? Uh, who knows? You have to ask yourselves. Uh, mm. I would just say maybe you were busy and we were busy and everybody was busy. <laughs> I certainly have been. I've been very busy. Well, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Max. As many know you of uh, the creator of Homebrew, amongst other open source projects, of course, that one being a massive hit and one used daily by thousands and perhaps millions. I don't know about millions might be a stretch. Thousands around the world. I'd say millions. It's millions. Millions. Is it millions? I'd say millions yeah. for sure. Oh, man. Not even stretching. It's difficult to estimate precisely, but it's, it's definitely millions. How do you know that number? Is that a guess or is that somewhat educated? Well, they got the analytics now. Well, it's a guess, That's but true. You can, I can look at the GitHub statistics and see the amount of clones, and we also have other statistics now. Right. You can't be precise, but I just can't see how it could be less than millions at this point. Right. Like every developer who uses a Mac, pretty much. Right. Well, we'll definitely go back and uh, touch base on Homebrew's creation, but let's go even further back. Um, we like to find out the origin stories of hackers that everybody look up to. And uh, you, sir, are one of them. So tell us how you got started. Give us a little bit of your background, where you're coming from, and what really got you into software and open source. Well, way back when I was six, we had a BBC Micro. This is a, it was a common computer in England at the time, or the UK, hence the BBC part. And I don't know the exact history of that, why it was branded BBC, but I assume that they sponsored its development or something. And my dad started teaching me programming. And initially I just made awful games, like uh, you're fighting a monster, pick your weapon, sword, uh, stick, or colorful language. 
And uh, <laughs> that was good fun. Uh, but it was always a hobby for me. I never considered it for a career right up until the end of college, which I did chemistry for. Mm. And uh, the only reason I got back into programming like more thoroughly, like, I've been doing it on and off like, all through my teen years and mostly making toys or little tools. I made this clock for Windows that when you clicked it, it moved to the opposite corner of the screen, things like that. Back nice. when uh, Windows didn't have time in the corner obviously when they added that it made less sense and uh it had a great y2k bug <laughs> it turned out that little clock i made after 2000 i tried doing it up again and it claimed like it was the 15th century or something couldn't handle it wow so for those who may not actually remember that maybe those born after 2000 what was that yeah give us the y2k rundown that'd be good well, everyone was terrified of the year 2000 in the software industry because, if you can believe it, way, like, you know, 10, 20 years before that, bytes were extremely valuable. Like, we had hardly any RAM. I remember my first PC had two megabytes, I think, and that was pretty good going. Right. So rather than store the full date, we uh, optimized by just storing the last two digits. Uh, very minor optimization, but at the time it seemed worth it. And then as a result, when 2000 started, rearing its head, uh, date software would typically think it was the 19th century or something like that. It depended on how it was written, like what exactly it did with those two digits. So yeah, well, I, my stepdad at the time was working in software and he made like a fortune going around banks, uh, investigating how this software would handle the Y2K transition. And well, it became a, a media hysteria, of course, as well. Yes. Everyone thought that the world had a 50-50 chance of falling into chaos when, <laughs> yes. uh, on January 1st, 2000. Uh, nothing really happened in the end, I, I guess. It shows a different world then, though, right? Like, it, it, that world then was so uneducated about what software was capable of. Yeah. Like, it was a different world. No one had a smartphone in their pocket. No one really knew what no. an application or... It was just such an ignorant society at that time to technology. Well, so, like, I think to be fair, the software was even flakier back then, <laughs> if you can believe it. Right. So people had very little confidence that software could handle big events. Right. And then it turned out that everything was fine. So either the contractors made it to every last line of code and, and updated their date implementations, or you know it was all for naught and it was going to be okay anyways, and perhaps mm -hmm. people were profiteering, or what's the right word for or making boatloads of money uh, based off of, you know, fear, <laughs> but uh, probably a little bit of both. Yeah, most likely a little both. Like, I'm sure it would have been bad if the banks had had problems, but they were the ones who were most interested in correcting it, and, like, maybe some minor, mm -hmm. less important industries had problems, but it didn't cause the end of the world, certainly. And, like, day and time is still a problem, of course, like, you hear regularly about, Companies that have to turn their databases off for daylight savings time because they can't handle being at the same date twice in the same day. Right. I mean, the same time, things like that. So mm. now you, that's a whole new worm there is, is time. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, let's not get started on time. We'll never find our way back out again. But it's funny that it did actually affect your your window clock app. So <laughs> you were not Y2K yeah. compliant. <laughs> I was not. Didn't even think about it which is a common thing with software development, of course. Mm -hmm. Anticipating everything. That's hard. Yeah, so uh, 
I did a chemistry degree and I have a master's in chemistry as it happens. But in my third year, because in the UK, most courses are only three years for university. And I did a four-year course with a year in industry. So in my third year, I went to work at Kodak in London, which was a bad choice. I should have picked one of the beautiful like chemistry labs in the middle of the countryside, British countryside. It probably would have changed my life if I'd done that. But I went to Harrow in London, which is possibly the most disgusting place in the entire world, and discovered that chemistry is very boring, actually. Really, really boring. <laughs> <laughs> so after about four months of this year, I was quite depressed and I decided I'd install Linux on my computer and get into making apps. Though no one really called them apps at the time. It's more like, what, programs or... Programs, yeah. Yeah. So I uh, started working on KDE, which is still around, a Linux mm -hmm. desktop environment. And I really enjoyed the sense of community and making things that other people enjoyed using. And so I almost got fired from Kodak, even though they would rarely do such a thing with these interns that they had, and then went back to university. Spent most of the year working on uh, two apps. Uh, first was File Light, which was the first thing I ever made, really, uh, which was a... It's like Disk Daisy on Mac. Okay. uses the same idea of representing the files and folders concentrically in uh, sort of pie charts that nest inside each other, which really helped. Like, you know, again, back then we had so much less disk space as well, so you really needed to figure out where, who was using what and get rid of the delete files regularly. And Amarok, which was a music player, and that was uh, my first proper open source project. We were working as a team of three or four of us, and uh, it became pretty popular because there wasn't any good music players on Linux. And we were doing things that other people hadn't really considered at the time as well, like showing the Wikipedia information for the artist you were listening to. Like, I don't think, I think we invented that. So I almost failed my chemistry degree. <laughs> uh. It was close, very close. I basically stopped going to classes and somehow managed to cram and get the minimum grade required, uh, which was just as well because I'd signed up to do a PhD because I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, I was doing computational chemistry for my dissertation, so the professor I was working for taught me how to use Mathematica, and I was doing quite well at that. But I didn't get the grade required to stay there and do the PhD, so I had to go home and just kept working on open source, basically, until I got a job at Last Femme in London because of Amarok, because we were using Last Femme and scrubbling quite heavily, and uh, went there, and that, that's what got me into the industry without a computer science degree or nice. anything similar. So when you were on the change the last time, which was September 14th, at least the published date was September 14th, 2010. Were you at last FN then? No, I'd been at TweetDeck at that point. It's since January, 2010. Mm. I was at last FM two and a half years, which is the longest I've ever been at a single company, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun last FM, and they, they had the right attitude towards startups and open source and things. Yeah. But, like they got acquired by CBS in uh, 2007, and it gradually degraded after that. And all the all my friends left, and all the all the really talented people had left. And so I moved on. I went to TweetDeck, where I built the Android app and redid their iPhone app just before Twitter acquired them. Wow! <laughs> Which happened after the 
the last episode that we did together. So you should work at companies because they get acquired. <laughs> Basically, it seems to be that way. Yeah, I, I don't. I like small companies. I like I like having lots of hats and uh, learning new skills and applying them. Well, something I picked up was that you know, Jared, like many uh, hackers who come on the show, their beginnings tend to be in games to some degree. Right. But something that uh, Max had said was the community. Like, you really enjoyed the community part of it. So mm-hmm. it would make sense that you prefer smaller companies because there's it's far more of a community feel in a smaller company because yeah, you can't hide. You know, you you have to sort of, like, face the demons that sort of wait in the hallways. They're, they're just there. You tend to be more civil, potentially even, or maybe not. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, something insulating about big companies where... And uh, it becomes so much more political... And I can't stand that. Mm-hmm. I, 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 want, I want to get things done. I don't want to have to <laughs> persuade people to let me get things done. Yeah. Bureaucracy is is a, a no-fun battle, that's for sure. Especially if you're someone like you who has the ability to, I mean, and having the track record of things like Homebrew that millions of software developers use every day. and Millions. B- bill- <laughs> billions. So, <laughs> did you say billions, Jared? I'm about to check the stats. Okay. But, you know, <laughs> lots of people use what you make. So, I mean, if you're that kind of person, why uh, why put reins on you? Yeah, well, I hate to be arrogant in that respect, but I, I feel that I get so much less done when I'm, I've got barriers in place. I don't, I don't want to be that kind of person. But it turns out that I am. I really, really hope <laughs> I wasn't. So, Amrook is your first open... That was your first foray into open source was, was this, and that was... Just before Last FM, is that right? Yeah, that was. I started working on Amrock in probably 2004, and then I joined Last FM in 2007. I'm walking down memory lane with you, Max, because I ran KDE for a few months in in college. Oh, yeah. um, I only lasted a few months, and I had to go back to GNOME for some reason. Probably, who knows? Something didn't work. But I was I was using Amarok, and uh, I have fond <laughs> memories of Last FM. Of, of course, Scrobbling, I think. Yeah. That last episode's big thing was scrobbling and yeah. I was getting my, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I think my iTunes was post was scrobbling the last FM, which would post to my WordPress. So like, you're just you're pulling me along down memory lane as you, as you go from place to place. <laughs> uh, tweet deck, tweet deck. I got I got no ties there, but uh, but you had me at last FM for sure. Where did homebrew begin? Homebrew began just after, well, probably right at the end of last FM. I was. Because the last time we were making cross-platform software, you know, I had to scrubble on every platform and uh, right. managing the dependencies that we had, which there were there were a few, not many, relative to like what people have nowadays, like blimey, but there wasn't really any good way of doing that. And so Homebrew was kind of a response to wanting a system that could be cross-platform and would allow me as a developer to control the dependencies on my system in multiple places and it's funny that these features do exist <laughs> but are not very used not not why it's successful at this point mm-hmm. but it, it is something it can do you can install multiple instances of homebrew you just have to check it out in different places yeah. and it will install to those places and the cross-platform as well it's in ruby it there is now a well-maintained linux port but you know that the, the original goal was that it could be so I started building it at the end of Last FM. And then when I left, I left in order to make iPhone apps. I thought, you know, because it was right at the beginning of uh, yeah. 
well, it was 2009, so the App Store had been around for about a year. And the stories of people making a million dollars out of like Doodle Jump and things like that were right. inspiring. <laughs> and I had experience with iPhone development because at Lost Fan, we'd made an Android app, we made a, uh, an iPhone app, and a BlackBerry app. So, wow, BlackBerry. The BlackBerry app was awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they did have an SDK, it was just terrible. <laughs> and I, I don't think their store lasted very long in the end. What language would you use for BlackBerry? It was C. Okay. Which, yeah, well, raw C++. I never want to do again, certainly. <laughs> like last time we used Qt, which was a C++ cross-platform toolkit. And mm. Qt was very nicely designed using a subset of C++, like any good framework tends to, because there's just too much of it. And it had a, a very similar to Coco kind of way of working. Uh, Coco being the name of Apple's frameworks mm -hmm. for Objective-C and now Swift. Uh, so yeah, I had the experience. So I, I thought I'd quit and make apps and make a million dollars and be very happy. <laughs> but the problem was I kept working on Homebrew because I needed it for various other things. And once I put it on GitHub, people started to notice it. And then uh, one day, this guy, I think his name is Simon Willison forget he used to be twitter famous so i'm not sure if he is anymore but he posted a stack a super user question about how to manage dependencies on his mac so i answered with oh i made this new project and i explained a lot of the rationale behind it and that got it noticed by josh peak who i think is a github now he wasn't 37 signals uh -huh. so he he tweeted that when he upgrades to leopard which was mac 10.5 i think or was it 10.6? Uh, no, it's 10.5. He would install Homebrew, and that got me my first 100 forks, and then it just kept going up and up and up, and uh, then it became addicting because every day I'd wake up and there was a bunch of... With the pull request didn't exist at that point. Mm -hmm. There was just tickets from people saying, oh, I made this formula, it's in my fork, when you merge it, so I'd merge it. And from the start, I designed Homebrew to be really simple to contribute to because I knew I didn't want to write all the formula. And one of my issues with Mac ports was that it seems opaque. It seemed really difficult to figure out how to contribute. So I designed it so that there were commands on the command line to help you see the formula, contribute to the formula, edit them. And uh, it was all built on Git. That was the update mechanism. So you could just push straight away with your edits. And that was the key, really, to its success, I think. It was just the... Uh -huh understanding about how people don't really like contributing to open source because they don't know how. So you've got to build that in as like a, an easy way for them to just push back, push back their contributions. Mm -hmm. I, des I designed the formula themselves to be very readable so you could open any formula and understand how to make your own. It was, it was always part of the design I went for. Another aspect of Homebrew that I recall uh, making it popular which interestingly, we just had Mike McQuaid on the show back in episode 223 talking about Homebrew's 1.0 release and you know, the current core maintainer, or primary maintainer. And he's inherited a lot you know, from you. He's inherited the naming convention. Yeah. And uh, I think Homebrew as a name and then the, the metaphor of the naming convention applying formula and kegs and sellers and all these things uh, had a certain attractive, like it, it was like marketed itself in a certain way. 
Yeah. Uh, tell us, <laughs> give us, maybe you talked about this in 35, but you know, six years ago, none of us remember. What was the impetus behind the naming convention of homebrew and this whole metaphor you came up with? How'd that come about? Well, I, I love names. Um, I mean, I hate names. <laughs> so often I love hate names. <laughs> it's a love-hate so, relationship. <laughs> so, so often they're terrible. Like uh, People often don't think carefully about their names, especially in programming for like classes and functions. And they're so important. I'm a big believer that you don't need to comment if the name is good and the responsibility boundary is clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I feel, I feel if I need a comment on this function that I haven't, or class or whatever, that I haven't named it correctly. So I've always been very keen to pick the right names for things. But also I understand the marketing importance of a name for an open source project. Like if you call it Package Manager X, it's, no one's going to talk about it. Right. You need, you need something inspiring. So I was just looking for names at Last Fem while I was there, like near the end. I was like, I, I, need, I want a theme. I was saying, I want, I want the name to then lead to other names I can use in this product. And one of my coworkers said, well, then it should be a beer theme, obviously, Max, because <laughs> startup community, obviously, there's quite a bit of drink there. And London, right. there's so much drinking in London. like. Uh, it's uh, that's one of the things my wife who's American said about London is just like you get a job in London and then in the evening you go to the pub every day you go to the pub and that's true basically <laughs> not everyone goes every day but someone in your company is going every day uh, it might not be the same person every day but you know you can go to the pub across the road from the office and there will be someone you know there mm-hmm. and that's it's one of the nice things about pub in, pubs in Britain that they're really uh, places you can go to meet people you know, you, and it's friendly, and it, it doesn't have the stigma that it does in America. Like in America, you have bars, and probably there's some guy who's there every day, and he's a loser, and he's a drunk. <laughs> uh, pubs in Britain are like, where you go? It's true. He's there right now, actually. <laughs> he probably is. But, well, it, L- London overdoes it, honestly. I think it's important to draw that distinction, too, because, you know what you call a pub, pub is a, uh, it's probably a cool place to hang out, watch sports, you know, and, and see, see friends that you may have not seen in a while. Whereas, you know, my version of it might be more like a bar, you know, like a yeah. small town bar, which is similar, but not the same. Yeah. A pub is, it's a lot more family friendly. I, I guess would be a one way of describing it. Like they serve good food even. Yeah. And, um, hopefully it's, been owned by the same family for a while mm-hmm. although that's less and less the case sadly so yeah they're a lot they're a lot they're a lot more savory but still london overdoes it really does so at the time i was 26 or whatever uh no i'll be uh 28 28 was and so yeah there was a lot of beer in my life and uh, to be fair like i drank british beer which is usually three three and a half percent so uh, it seemed like a great idea. And then I thought, well, homebrew is a great name for it. Uh, at the time, I didn't think about the Apple connotation. I was just thinking about how, you know, I wanted it to feel like a platform that you could uh, create your own packages for and uh, customize them the way you wanted them to be customized. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like a great name. And it just led to the other names. I thought carefully about each one. Like there was a while that it wasn't going to be formula, it was going to be recipe because. You, they're not really formula in the, the homebrewing 
beer space, um, mm. but it, it formula was more unique. And uh, cakes and cellars, and in the, it, like cakes are stored in racks technically, but that's not really something people know. It's all there in the and it's it's fun, so it all worked out really well. And um, I hope I didn't contribute somewhat to the silly naming systems that seem to go on in open source nowadays. Like people seem to name their things completely randomly nowadays just to have a distinctive name. Like I saw an image library the other day called Kingfisher. Like, why is it called Kingfisher? Right. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's gotten to the point where it's more, it's more akin to domain names, where you know the real estate's running out, and yeah. there's namespace clashes. Um, there's many times that we see names that uh, are you know are exactly the same as another project in a slightly different ecosystem or language. Um, and like you said, people are trying to draw more and more attention to their open source projects because there are more projects, and so it's harder to get noticed. And so, yeah, you know, you start taking the vowels out, you know, <laughs> doing what you can do. But uh, yeah, you're right. That's more of a reasonable explanation for why it's happening. Still, you know, a name needs to have some sense of purpose so you have an idea about what it is. Uh, admittedly, like people always say, oh, well, Kingfisher is an image library or whatever. But there's so many to remember. You need a, a mnemonic for your own brain to remember what it's about, and if the name tells you it as well mm. then yeah and you'll 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 remember it properly like package manager x yeah, <laughs> yeah. pmx go go literal i guess the only question i have for you on that uh, on the naming front so sure you enjoyed the pubs and beer that's where you're from it's part of your culture to to sort of appreciate that but you know, at what point was it like, yes, this, you know, did you start applying it? Did you start thinking about formula keg and all the permutations of the naming that could, could eventually come out and you're like, okay, this does fit. And, and how long did it get you to be like, okay, it's a perfect fit. Let's, let's call it homebrew. Um, after the suggestion, a couple of days, and then I had most of the names done within a week or so. I find it very important to have the names for some reason. Yeah. Um, it really helps me to identify the product clearly in my head. So sometimes I know like an app I want to build or an idea for a tool, but I don't start until I've come up with the name. I can't start until I've come up with the name. Although partly that might be because often I'm using Xcode and Xcode's name refactoring tools are abysmal. This is a good place to pause real quick. We got uh, a break we'll take here. And when we come back, we'll dive a bit deeper into homebrew and other fun stuff with Mac. So we'll be right back. I talked to Daniel Reed, head of design at TopTile, about their new expansion into TopTile designers, doing for designers what they've done for developers. We talked about why TopTile works for designers, and this is what she had to say. As a designer, the big, or as any kind of creative person, the big overarching question is always like, how can you find inspiration? Um, and for me personally, and for a lot of creatives that I've spoken to, it's really about traveling, exploring, and being accountable for your own career. And I think as a top tile designer or a remote designer in general, the ability to be able to switch up your lifestyle 
change contexts, meet new people, uh, have new ideas sort of infiltrated into your life by having that freedom and flexibility is something that's absolutely fundamental to doing great work. That's the real power of TopTel, I feel. You're not just stuck with one product, one company, or even one agency, but you can choose to work on multiple occasionally or a range of different clients. Um, and I think that that keeps you fresh. It gets you involved in new technologies, different people, and is really fundamental for being sort of switched on as a designer. All right, that was Daniel Reed, head of design for TopTal. To learn more, go to toptal.com slash designers. That's T-O-P-T-A-L dot com slash designers. Tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. And now back to the show. All right, we're back with Max Howell, and we're talking about homebrew, and Jerry, we love, hate names, and Max, uh, you said it best. You love, and then you said you hate names, or hate, you love names. I'm not sure which, but either way, homebrew is a pretty good name, and then you sat down, and you thought about the architecture of homebrew, and how it'd map out, and all these different things. Like That's a pretty deliberate choice on a name, for one, but then also to kind of like sit down and think about it, and, and how it would all play out, so tell us a bit more about that. Well, like I say, um, good names are so great. That's what I love because they allow you to understand the thing. And that's what I think a lot of programmers don't understand about names is that the understanding of what the thing is, is in the name. And uh, so Homebrew led into this wonderful set of metaphors for how the architecture fit into the naming. And it really helped me to design it. I had a clear metaphor for what a keg was, what a formula was and the rack and the cellar they all made sense and so it really helped to design thoroughly and then eventually that led to taps and well i i am kind of working on this thing for homebrew right now and i'm using the uh the, the term growler to define <laughs> what the thing is and uh it's just perfect so it's one of those refillable things then or yeah it, it you, i don't want to reveal what it is okay but, uh, you, I think it because the name works, so you're thinking along along the right lines. Okay, yeah, it's perfect. Nice. So tell us about the transition because you you built Homebrew, you maintained it for a long time. Uh, it grew to massive adoption. Pretty much anybody who develops on a Mac it uses Homebrew nowadays. Um, but we just had Mike McQuaid on, who's the lead maintainer, and so there's a certain point where you handed it off. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what? Uh, what prompted you to move on and then how that transition went? Um, so for at least two years, I really enjoyed working on homebrew still, and it gradually accumulated more and more people to help. Uh, Mike was one of them, and I knew Mike. Uh, he was a friend from the KDE era, in fact. Wow. Uh, and he'd moved to London and worked uh, a company that was somewhat related to us. So we were friends and he had contacted me not long after it started getting attention to us to work on it as well. And I was like, well, of course. And he was there from very near the beginning. But after two years or so, I'd solved all the interesting problems and I'd started to lose interest. It, you know, it was, it was basically done. And I think that's a big problem I have in general. <laughs> I, I lose interest in things once they're done, and I'm always looking for the next thing after that. So uh, I started contributing less, and w- one day I got at replied by someone who was angry about some formula that they wanted to have merged, and it had been rejected. 
And the reason it was rejected was really my own fault because initially when I made homebrew, I was adamant that it wouldn't have trivial crap in it. And, you know, because it just, it's, it's like the app store. If It would perhaps be better if it was a bit higher quality. Now I disagree with that decision. Uh, there was ways to work around that. Um, and we, we invented them. Uh, it's tap system. Mm-hmm. So uh, also because the more, more stuff you had in there, the harder it was to really have high quality core formula, but that, the tap system solves that. So uh, I disagreed with the other guy's decision and I merged it without talking about it because I was being arrogant. And it resulted in an argument, and I decided that I didn't want to be part of a project where there was conflict like that. So I left, basically. And uh, uh, the project had always been on my name at that point, under MXCL. And I was kind of proud of that because it was, for a long time, the most forked, most starred project on GitHub. And my name was next to it. And... Had led to quite a number of interesting emails and conversations and phone calls from people that were just browsing GitHub and found my name. So there was an opportunity definitely associated with having a very high profile project on my name. Uh, but they wanted me to move it onto the homebrew organization, and like that made sense. I couldn't, I couldn't deny that if I wasn't going to work on it right uh, actively anymore, then it needed to be moved to an organization so that it didn't. Like, you know, while it was on my name, I could just delete it effectively, which would be kind of an interesting movie, probably. Disaster movie. <laughs> like Left Pad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just like Left Pad. That was, uh, that was very interesting, I thought, at the time. And I was at Apple then, and they, everyone at Apple was asking me how the Swift Package Manager was not going to be affected in the same way. Oh. Uh, so, so I moved it, but it took me like four hours with the button on my screen uh, before I could summon the courage to push it. So, 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 just emotionally, it was so, so hard to give it up because it, it never could come back. And uh, I'm very proud of Homebrew. It was a project I put a lot of time, effort, and thought into, and it paid off. The way I thought it could, and that doesn't happen very often in your life. This is exactly why we say on the show, Jared, to everyone listening: be nice to your maintainers because it's <laughs> that kind of heart that mulls over for four hours. It's that kind of spirit you put into that kind of project and that kind of care and love that yeah. we have to appreciate and honor. And if you don't do that, then like it's just not cool. And I can hear the anguish in your voice sharing that story, bro. Like that's that's. I'm glad you shared it. It sucks it turned out that way, but uh, to have people like you out there in open source is super cool to me. Well, it, it was the right thing to do. I could not, could not do it. I cared course, about the project. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like if I wasn't willing to maintain it anymore, then it needs to be given over to the community. And I was just glad that the community was there to take it. It's more about the finality of it than it is the the act is what I mean by what I said. It's because mm. it's like yeah, it's it's this moment where you, it, there is like you said it, it can't come back. There's this point of no return, and yeah. it's that's hard to deal with. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I felt a sort of relief once it was done, though. Like for one, <laughs> my GitHub notifications were never readable. <laughs> <laughs> you could actually use them. Yeah, exactly. I had other open source projects and they were just anguish because I couldn't 
I'd know when someone was actually trying to get my attention for them. Uh, I couldn't really know what people wanted my attention on homebrew either. Uh, homebrew notifications are not designed for a project of that popularity for sure. Uh-huh. So the moment it was gone, suddenly I had like, I could get back into my other projects and things. That's what I was more interested in at the time. It made sense. So once you're done with homebrew, what was the next step for you? What was the, the next bigger milestone for you in life? Uh, what at that point or now? Oh, when you were done with homebrew, when that, that moment, back to um, that moment where you, you push the button, the next big milestone for you. Well, I'd, uh, basically been doing iPhone development at that point for three or four years. And at the time I was in Chicago, uh, I, uh, <laughs> between then and the last changelog and now I've moved to America. I met an American girl and we moved to Chicago and we now live in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, so I was in Chicago at the time and I was teaching iPhone development part-time, like half a week, uh, which I really enjoyed. And it allowed me to learn a lot about how people approach learning how to code. It was a boot camp, so these things are kind of rip-offs, and I felt bad about that, but I was just an employee. So. And uh, I was working on uh, Promise Kit, which is probably the open source project that I maintain the most at the moment, uh, which is just Promises for iOS. I'd used Promises because I'd done a lot of JavaScript development in between as well. And promises just made so much more sense for asynchronicity, and there was nothing good for iOS. So I was like, okay, I'll build it. Uh, so I was working on that. But about that time, the bootcamp I was working for was running out of money. So they said, well, Max, sorry, you're the most expensive person here. <laughs> I didn't realize uh, uh, we're going to have to let you go. So suddenly I was left no regular income. I didn't want to do any more iOS contracting, which I'd done a lot of. Um, cause it, I know it just sucks the soul out of me working on other people's apps that I didn't really care about. It was very good money, but I, I could only do it for a few months at a time before I became depressed and just wanted to do open source or something that made sense to me. Uh, so uh, we, me and my wife didn't know what to do. And, uh, Google had been emailing me for years uh, saying, you should come and interview, you should come and interview. And uh, I'd always thought, no, I don't, I don't want to go there. I'm not a big company person. I wouldn't fit in. I don't have computer science. Like, does it make sense? But because things have just suddenly shifted around for us, we thought we'd give it a go. So I went for the interview. That probably leads us to the, uh, what I'll just call the tweet heard around the world. <laughs> Pretty much around the developer world, at least, yep. which is uh, June 2015. And you said, uh, Google, 90% of our engineers use the software you wrote <laughs> in parentheses homebrew, but you can't invert a binary tree on a whiteboard. So, and I'll, I'll censor it F off. <laughs> yeah. And that's, uh, that sparked. Well, tell us, about, tell us about that tweet from your perspective, because I know it from mine, but I don't, I don't know it from yours. Yeah, I don't know if anyone knows it from mine, apart from people who know me, so I haven't really talked about it. Basically, the recruiter who I talked to in the interview process was pretty adamant that I would mostly get asked about iOS stuff, and that's what they wanted me for, iOS stuff. So 
despite their email giving me a big list of computer science stuff I should know, I didn't do any research or studying for it because I assumed that they wanted me for the knowledge I had and not the knowledge that I could have if I studied but don't. So my first interview was the binary tree question, and I, I think I did a fairly good attempt for someone who didn't even know what they were talking about, although I, it wasn't a binary tree question, it turns out. I didn't even know. I just assumed it was. It was, uh, oh, God. It's, it's a thing where the, you have an array and it's every, it, you can divide it in two to get uh, blah, blah. I can't remember. Mm. You know what that is? I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, like, after failing at that, I went home and looked it up and figured out how to do it just to prove to myself I could. But, yeah, it, it, I, I did well in, like, half half the interviews mm-hmm. like since i've actually talked to the people that interviewed me because uh of the tweet mm-hmm. and they said that it was uh it was a difficult choice that they made but they decided not to based on their the way they do these things right they have a very strict process but anyway like we went by and they phoned and said no and like i just fired the tweet out because i was like this is ridiculous <laughs> like considering the popularity of homebrew i just assumed that they could fit me in somewhere with something like they have enough engineers that use it. Surely I would have some value to them. That was my thinking. Right. Even if like, even though I thought I was going there for iOS, which uh, I prefer to have done like their iOS app needs some work, frankly. But yeah, so uh, I it off. Didn't really think about it. <laughs> I put homebrew in brackets, I guess, because I was thinking, well, if it's retweeted, people will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and obviously the ninety percent is bullshit. It was a flippant tweet, right? I I was exaggerating. Like, who knows what the percentage actually is? Like, probably all their Mac developers or the majority. Like, there's still some diehard Mac ports users out there for sure. Uh, yeah, and well, that exploded. That's for sure. Right, twenty minutes later, I checked back and it had like four hundred retweets. So I was like, oh dear. <laughs> 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 and then uh, people started linking me to the Hacker News article. And I got one of my co-workers to look it up on Hacker News. He was like, where do you think you're ranked on Hacker News? I was like, I don't know, top 20. He's like, try the top. And I took a screenshot of my tweet at the top of Hacker News. I was like, oh, God. And so I never read any of that stuff. Oh, you didn't? And I didn't reply to much. No. Because it was never my intention to make that much fuss. I feel kind of bad for Google because, to be fair, they told me what I needed to read like the recruiter had made me think differently but they sent me an email that was very specific and clear about what i needed to know yeah. what i should know and like uh, it's it wasn't fair because 90 percent is obviously not true i got a lot of googlers saying 90 percent lol mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh you know like i don't like it because i came across so arrogant mm. but I like the conversation that arose because of it because they definitely could have found useful. Yeah. There was a lot of conversation around this, as you said, some of it's on the, you know, in the replies to the tweet and, uh, you know, everything from people saying, uh, well, you're not a real programmer if you can't uh, invert a binary tree to other people defending you and, (laughs) um, you know, who's to, who's at fault here. And I like that, you know, in retrospect, you know, the numbers were, of course, that was not like the actual number. You did, it, did you survey all their engineers and get a 90%? <laughs> um, no, sure. But I like that, you know, knowing the full story, it seems like 
I agree with you that it just makes sense that with how many engineers they have and how many do use homebrew and you're, you've demonstrated over time that you can have software that's valuable to many, many people. You, I could totally see where you would be thinking, surely there's a position for me since they're already interested in having me work there. It's not like it's a, a cold interview. Um, but that being said, they hearing that they did like give you what you needed to know, or they made it clear that they were going to require this of you Mm -hmm. makes it look like it's not so bad on Google side. No, I, I I feel bad for them. I say, (laughs) yeah, Uh, but you know, this is how things are nowadays with social media and virality. Um, and 140 characters. Mm -hmm. The question (sighs) is, would you do it again? Would I do the interview? If you had to rewind back to the day, would you (laughs) do the same tweet? Oh, um, yes, but, uh, only because I think it inspired some conversation in the industry about how these interviews should be. Yeah. I, I, I really feel bad for shaming them. I, I guess they probably don't take it personally. And I feel bad because I'm sure a lot of people think I'm just an arrogant ass now. Uh, but I try not to think about it personally in that respect. It was just flippant. A lot. I went from 3,000 followers to 16,000 in like a month. Wow. <laughs> uh, I don't like that either. Why don't you like that? Particularly, like my, most of these people aren't following me for anything that like I actually care about. You know, they're mm-hmm. following me because they maybe they are. Maybe they discovered you because of that. You know, maybe it well, was the maybe maybe the entry point for you, at least to them, so to speak. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing there is that you do it again, but uh, but with some regard, and yeah. at the same time, none of us are identified by our tweets, right? Like my tweets don't define me. And I may say something sometime that doesn't exactly identify who I am, but the thing is that the people tend to to take the black and white text we put on the internet as like the the version of us, you know, like that's the truth. And it's just there's a gray area there where yeah. where you're not exactly the person you seem you are. And there's mm-hmm. a person behind that versus just a tweet. Right. Absolutely. I definitely like the conversation because I knew you previously. I didn't. I hadn't followed you on Twitter, but I knew you as the homebrew guy. And when I saw that tweet, I thought. And I've never been interviewed by Google, so I don't know what that process is like. I know they had brain teasers and whiteboarding and stuff like that, um, but I hadn't thought about the interview process and at large companies because I've I've never been a part of a large company. And the conversation around it wasn't just you know, should Max have gotten hired? Should he not have gotten hired? Yeah, you know, is Google evil? Is Max arrogant? Like that wasn't, <laughs> of course, those conversa- those things are always said right. on any popular conversation, um, unfortunately. But it was, is interview broken? Is interviewing broken? How can we do this better? Um, those kind of things. And I felt like the end of it, there were, you know, there were a lot of think pieces that were written. <laughs> but I think there were a lot of good things that came out of that, and. Um, and so I would hope you'd do it again, too, just so that we can continue having these conversations. So that leads us to where you actually did land, which was Apple. So I don't know. Can you compare and contrast, I guess, the hiring process uh, between the two? Or is that be would that be profitable? Or uh, Similar in that they're all day. It's exhausting. Uh-huh. I, um, Apple had more interviews. But I was interviewed by the people I'd work with. Uh, Google really do seem to... I don't know if they've changed anything. But I heard from a friend who was at Google at the time that my tweet went round Google hmm. and that it inspired a lot of internal conversation. Hmm. 
So I don't know if they've changed how they do it at all. And well, funnily enough, I got two calls the week after from a couple of people at Google asking me to come and interview with their team and that it would be very specific to their team because they wanted me to do iOS stuff for them. And uh, that's partly because of Promise Kit because it's a pretty good framework. Like I designed it carefully like I designed Homebrew um, and I needed it just like I needed Homebrew. Like the best things I make are always the things I make from things I need, tools I need. So Apple interviewed me personally. Well, Google, they just, it's like jury duty is the impression I got. You get an email saying you have to interview Max Howell on Thursday, whatever it was. Uh, be prepared. <laughs> and then they have uh, like a box full of questions that you can generate a random number and pick one. And uh, But the interviewers get quite a lot of choice. Like one of my interviewers at Google knew the, what my skills were and asked me stuff about it. And I did pretty well and uh, another one had me redesign the api and i did pretty well the, the ones i couldn't do were the, the data algorithm stuff which never really needed is the thing but i think i made a pretty good attempt right and that's i guess what i changed about the interviewing process at these sort of places is like yeah. did i demonstrate that i could solve problems given inputs even if i don't have the specific knowledge like it seems ironic at google like <laughs> learning how to do that is just to Google away. And that's what I did when I got home. Right. Just to prove to myself that I could do it after feeling stupid, which is what these things do. Uh, but so Apple interviewed me personally and uh, apparently were told to give me a, an easy-ish time because of my tweet. <laughs> wow. Uh, nice. Don't mess with him. He'll tweet about you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah like, that was that was one of my concerns with the tweet. It was like, well, you've just screwed up a lot of chances for yourself. But at the same time, it wasn't. Like, I got 200 emails, like, give or take, because of the tweet from different companies saying, well, you want to, like, give us a call? We could use you. <laughs> so yeah. that, that was interesting, an interesting side effect, certainly. Uh, including, like, SpaceX. And I was like, wow, I could really, that would be cool. But I didn't. And, like, the only reason I considered going to Apple was because um, I met with Chris Latner while he was at WWDC and talked to him, and he was awesome. And they were like, well, we kind of need like you know something like homebrew, but for Swift. I was like, well, that's amazing, because I was so into Swift then. Uh, as an iPhone developer for a few years at that point, and Swift just suddenly came out at uh, the previous WWDC, and I could see that it was a really nice language with forward thinking in the right places, learning from the right places of different languages. It was the language I wanted to use and maybe use for 10 years, you know, who knows? Like, I, I hesitate to say the rest of my life in this industry, but, you know, 10 years seems to be like forever. Right. <laughs> and so the opportunity to shape that language was just irresistible because I wouldn't have gone to another interview probably after the Google experience. It just wasn't for me. I knew it wasn't for me. The only reason I'd done it is because we landed in a situation we didn't know what to do with ourselves exactly. So I didn't want to do contracting anymore. So yeah, that, their interviewing process was much nicer. But at the same time, I don't think they should have hired me, quite honestly. So <laughs> maybe Google had the right idea. <laughs> Why not? That's so funny. Well, it, I was only there a year. It didn't work out. 
I'm uh, just not the right kind of person for these big corporations. I was trying to make the Swift package manager the way I knew the community needed it. I've been involved with CocoaPods and Carthage and used them heavily and obviously made homebrew. So I had lots of opinions about how package management should be. Yeah. And especially for a language package manager, which is different to a package manager. And I came with all these ideas and I couldn't persuade anyone about many of them. And it was very frustrating. Mm. Um, same time, they couldn't really persuade me about their alternatives. So you weren't persuadable. They weren't persuadable. Yeah. I, I wanted to work like I worked in open source where I produced stuff and then we reviewed it and considered how it would go from there. Or I stewed on ideas for a couple of months and then talked about it. And, and, uh, and like Apple, uh, yeah, I, can't, I can't speak for the whole company. Sure. I really can't. Because um, every department is, is very isolated and that it can be considered a good or bad thing. Like I won't go into it, I guess. But like, uh, so all I can talk about is for developer tools. And developer tools is a very old department. They've been around since, well, like ever since Apple existed. Yeah. Xcode itself has existed like 20, 25 years. I've never worked on a code base that's that old uh, with clunky clunks and pong clunky clunks. Like it's just, and they, they have to work with it because they can't rewrite the thing. Mm. But that's, I was mostly working independently of that, though, with the Swift team, but I wasn't on the Swift team. I was on the build systems team, so I was isolated from the Swift team, and that was probably a mistake on their part. I should have been with the Swift team. It wasn't all bad. Like Chris Latner is a, is a genius, and I'd be having meetings with my team trying to decide how we should take the product, and he'd come in and instantly appraise everybody in there, figure out their needs, wants, motivations, and... Just say the right thing. It was amazing. Hmm. So this is interesting. Your, your, your pinned tweet on Twitter says, the foundation of the modern world is developer tools. And here you are at Apple with the ability to affect a huge portion of the software development community. Uh, surely the entire portion of the Apple developer community. Working with Chris Latner, who's a genius. Uh, on the Swift Package Manager, which is to be an open source project, and yet, like, something's not jiving here. So I'd like to dig into that a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, on the other side of the break, but uh, we are hitting our next break, so we'll pause, think about that a little bit, Max, and we get back. Swift Package Manager, Inside Apple, open source, but there's there's trouble here. So let's pause. We'll be right back. Our friends at ThoughtWorks have an awesome open source project to share with you. GoCD is an on-premise, open source, continuous delivery server that lets you automate and streamline your build test release cycle for reliable continuous delivery. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for your team with ease, and the value stream map lets you track a change from commit to deploy at a glance. The real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end -end workflow so you can get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. To learn more about GoCD, visit go.cd slash changelog for a free download. It is open source. Commercial support is also available and enterprise add-ons as well, including disaster recovery. Once again, go.cd slash changelog. And now back to the show. All right, we are back. Max, before the break, we were talking about your time at Apple 
Uh, you were there for a year working on Swift Package Manager, which is out there and is open source. And so you got to be there, I believe, during the, the, the launching of that, which had to be fulfilling, I would think. But there was some struggle between you and, and management or between you and your position. You just couldn't quite have the impact that you were desiring to have. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make a really great thing because like I say, uh, I plan to use Swift for, I, I don't know when I'll stop using it. So it having a vibrant packaging community and a good packaging system was important to me personally, as well as professionally and for the good of the language. But uh, Apple have their, their way of working, which didn't fit with me specifically. Um, we, I butted heads with my manager and various other people many times. I've got to say, though, uh, the Swift team were great. Uh, they, they seem to be, <laughs> I don't want to be insulting, but they seem to be really forward thinking. They used modern development methodologies. They were extremely smart. They worked well together. They talked well together. They figured things out that I wouldn't have figured out, mm. you know, if I was in their position, they, they could like just little details of how to design the language so that it caters to so many different ways of working and yet still maintains the strictness, the safety, uh, the fun that is Swift. Like they, they were great. I said to my manager when I joined that I partly came to Apple because I wanted to learn from uh people who were smarter than me and he used that against me so many times because he he said that i didn't want to learn from them actually and i yeah uh, uh -huh. it wasn't a good it wasn't a good match that happens sometimes though, i think i mean people go into positions with like super high hopes right like dream job right. man i want to work here all my life the right. developer tools i've got the chops for this this is perfect and then it's just some sort of like bad mixture you never expect and you're like i gotta get out of here yeah i i've been there it made me realize how important team fit is i i've been lucky my entire career in that i just lucked into great teams that i fitted well in and that we worked well together uh when you don't have that it's just impossible yeah and uh, i did my very best because i cared so much and it drove me to quite a stage of depression actually I really wanted to make something great. I just didn't know how mm. to do it there. Like, so I'm pleased that some aspects of Swift Package Manager like succeeded to get in and are there. I think it has a good base. I'm glad. Otherwise, I would feel like I failed completely. But I think I think it can be a good thing still. So, is a lot of what is there? Is it uh, you'd mentioned earlier, likening back to your homebrew days that? Uh, your architecture and what you laid out and how it would work is a lot of what we see there. Not so much yeah. the code, but like how it works, how it's laid out, how it's supposed to work, the plan for it basically. Is it a lot of what you uh, contributed? Yeah, uh, with some compromises here and there. But a lot of the time I was able at first to get my way without it being too difficult. And so as a result, it's a highly modular system, which is one of Swiss powers. Like you can easily make modules and it's a convention based layout system. So you make new directories for each module and then sources in there get compiled into the modules. So you're not messing around. It's really easy to write code really fast. The syntax for the 
package description file, the recipe, the formula is in Swift, which I had to fight pretty hard for, uh, which means that you have flexibility with it. You can import modules into it, and although they didn't want that, etc. But you know, there's issue. They, they really didn't want that because it's not very Apple. I see. What was the other options, like a plist or XML file? Yeah, you know, like probably plist because that's well, uh, I don't know, like it would have been JSON, mm-hmm. I expect JSON. But you know, it's just it's, it's difficult to add things. You know, like what if you want to make a module where you only want the files with a uh, Windows extension for the Windows platform, things like that? It's really hard to describe that kind of behavior in JSON, but with Swift. Yeah. It's easy. You do a hash if windows and then you add to an array. Like programmers like to program, is my opinion on the matter. We uh we like code, we write code, we want the power of code, even if they that it results in some danger. Right. But with a real language. And uh that is decentralized. I'm very pleased it's decentralized. Like I wish homebrew had been decentralized to a certain extent in the first place, but it is now, like with taps. Um because it makes it easy for people to just push out their packages without having to like conform to some system. Like, for example, with CocoaPods, which is uh, the most popular iOS package manager currently, um, when I contribute to another CocoaPod, I have to like ping them for like a week or so for them to push an update so that I can actually use it without messing around in my pod file. It, it shouldn't be like that. I, I should be able to just like make the changes, use my fork very easily, and then like have it uh, ready to go into the main fork. And uh, that, that's the, that's what GitHub's about. It's about this decentralized open source community. So these things should be all over the place. And if I think that someone's doing something wrong, I should be able to easily fork it and use it. Or if I'm in a company and I need to make a change, but I can't release it, I can just use my private fork of the thing like easily, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I believe that's how these things should be for language package managers, certainly at least. So I feel that it's it's, pre- it's pretty good base. And like the people that are now working on it were, um, they're great. They're really very good. And I think they'll do a great job. Um, certainly probably better than me because I just couldn't figure out how to navigate Apple. Yeah. I couldn't figure it out. Well, I'm looking at the uh, the GitHub page for the package manager, and I'm happy that uh, the the file that you're talking about is called package.swift, yeah. and it's not called package file. Yeah. Uh, that, so that's a nice, as somebody who respects the names, I think that's a nice <laughs> break from convention there. Oh, like, that caused me sleepless nights getting that. Like, <laughs> 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 my... my it's just difficult it's difficult like apple basically like i'm pretty sure i can say these sort of things without getting an email from hr telling me to shut uh it's all about who you know so if you don't have the right influence with the right people you don't get your way even if you got the right idea and you only get that through years. You have to be there years. You have to put in five, ten years before you can make an impact. And I didn't have five, ten years as far as I was concerned. I had a year. Otherwise, this product was going to suck. Mm. That, and uh, it needed it now. It needed to be good now. 
and so and I like yeah well also I, I found that there's a lot of people there who love to invent work and I don't so I didn't I didn't go with that aspect so one thing you said earlier was that you're proud of homebrew would you say that you're proud of the work that you did at Apple no mm. well that's sad yeah well as, as, as I said like I, I blame myself as much as I blame yeah anyone else I knew before I went for any of these interviews that I didn't work well with teams and I don't, um, I, uh, I can, if it's just the right team and we all get on and we all can see each other's perspectives, but I just, I can't stand like when I, there's a bunch of stuff that isn't the work that must be done in order to get things done. And uh. at Apple, it was constant meetings and constant disagreement and constant battles about things that really weren't important in the slightest. That's, what, that's why I liked it when Chris Lander turned up because he could just like see through all of that. <laughs> this, is, this is why he's done so well. He's uh, very easy to admire. Well, it sounds like Swift is in good hands with Chris. Yeah, Swift is, it's got a fantastic team. It's going to do really great. And I'm so glad that they open sourced it. Without that, it would just it would have only ever been like for iPhone. Even if someone else had like figured out how to compile it on Linux or whatever, or written their own Swift compiler, because it's open source, I feel that it has a good chance to be uh, the next big scripting language, like replacing yeah. things like Ruby, Python, uh, maybe even replacing Node. I know that that's going to be harder because people love their JavaScript so much. <laughs> uh-huh. So Swift Package Manager is open source. Swift, of course, uh, famously open source. Big shift, really, for Apple to open source things on their own accord and not because they're complying with a GPL or something like that. That's not strictly true. <laughs> um, were, you, were you involved with the open sourcing idea around the Package Manager or, or were you in any of those meetings? I, I, I didn't make a decision. That was already made. Okay. Just thought it'd be interesting to be a fly on that wall around, you know, you talk about the arguments and whether or not to open source is a, is a big d- discussion. Or the motivation. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense for the language for sure, because if they want it to be, then like what you said, you know, it could be the next major scripting language or the, you know, a primary language that you teach children, these things, it has to be. Yeah. Well, Apple really care about that sort of thing. That's the impression I got. Like they want. Mm-hmm their stuff to be used. They want kids to learn to code and they want to help that. Yeah. That, that was a lot of its motivation. I know people want to be uh, suspicious as though Apple are just a company that are trying to get your money. But my feeling while I was there is it's definitely not that. Yeah. So what about Swift? So you've, you've said earlier that, you know, this could be your language for the next 10 years. Uh, you fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Give us first. Give us a rundown of some of the other languages that you know, which will give us a little bit of help, yeah, contextually. But then tell us what it is about Swift that you that you love so much. Well, the first language I ever used was BBC Basic, which is basically the same as Q Basic. Okay, and then I started learning C because there didn't seem to be anything else at the time. This was when I was like twelve, eleven, twelve, and then C plus plus, and then that was my first professional programming language. Then when I decided to make homebrew i wanted it to work without having to be compiled or installed so that made it have to be some scripting language that came with mac and i've seen a lot of people talk about ruby and how great it was so i tried it out and i agreed so 
Ruby. Then I did uh, about a year and a half of JavaScript while I was working on a uh, music app with someone that was on the web and that it also had a bunch of C for a little app and, and stuff. And I really quite liked JavaScript. I loved the functional aspect of it. I liked the dynamic aspect of it and um, the, the use of promises and things was new to me. So I enjoyed that. There was, uh, there was other things I liked about it, like uh, that you could call a function with as many arguments as you wanted and then figure it out later. <laughs> uh, like, I, I could see how it would easily lead to devastating behavior, but it was fun. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, went back to Objective-C, uh, which uh, yeah, I'd, I'd done a bunch of that as well uh, before that. And I love Objective-C, or did, at least, until Swift came out. <laughs> So, yeah, that's my language history. I've done, like, dabbling in other languages like Python. I've written a few, like, scripts in Python and Bash and everything. Consider Bash a programming language. Of course. What made you suspect that, uh, that Python, Ruby, might get supplanted by it? And then maybe even you said Node, which is more of a framework on top of a language than a language itself. Yeah, well, Node made... No, made JavaScript feasible as a right. server-side and not just in the browser right. system. Um, well, what's wonderful about Swift is, well, it's, it's familiar. Um, it's familiar to almost anyone. Uh, C-basedness, but it also has influences from so many other languages, you feel it. Uh, but safety, the safety of it, and that's what scripting languages really don't have. Uh, scripting languages are great because you can just power stuff out and it more or less works and it's easy to fix at first at least and uh, they have a good packaging system so you can get all these third-party libraries but they're not safe with swift everything is safe you end up programming in such a way that you know there's no way that there's an error or anything in this program that you haven't accounted for and i think that the biggest problem software has right now is it's flaky software sucks it breaks. You, you're using an app and you push a button and nothing happens. Or spinner starts and the spinner never finishes. Or the buttons move around incorrectly when you rotate it and it doesn't recover. Or it crashes. Or the data gets lost. Like, flakiness is the problem. We solved speed of development. We, we solved it being a difficult to crank out an app. But safety. There's no safety. And Swift naturally forces you to be safe. Huh. The optionals, obviously, is a big deal. Like it's, it's not an invention of Swift or anything. Like Most of these things aren't inventions of Swift. The invention of Swift is the way they put it all together in such a nice package. They carefully thought about keywords and how they interact with each other. They carefully thought about which things to bring to the language right? and not which things not to bring, which things had the most benefit. So with Swift, you, everything's... Uh, either it is or it's not, but uh, if it's not, then you have to wrap it as an optional. So this means you're always considering the cases where there's nothing, and you're trying to not have nothing. Like I, I try to write my apps now, so optionals are almost never there. And without the nil, uh, at least with Objective-C, it was a huge cause of bugs where Objective-C handled nil differently to other languages. If, if an object was nil or null, mm -hmm. it would just do nothing. So a common bug in iPhone apps was like, you push a button and nothing would happen because it was connected to something that was nil. Now, of course, in a Java app, 
It would just crash. So with Swift, you don't crash and you don't do nothing. Solve both of these issues. Like you, but they, they understand that it's still necessary to be pragmatic. So they have an implicitly unwrapped optionals, which are optionals where you say, well, I know this is never going to be nothing. Because sometimes you need that, but that will crash. But you have to opt into that. You have to really think about it. You have to be careful with it. And then you have this big explanation mark whenever you use it, reminding you that you're not being safe, that you're a bad programmer, that you should feel bad about yourself. <laughs> That's funny. Great explanation, too. <laughs> With version two, they uh, release guard, which is this statement where you can't get past it unless the thing in you're evaluating is true or not true. I, I can't think about it. And uh, it just means that you can write a function and then have like runtime asserts at the top. And uh, you can't leave the guard statement unless you return or leave the function in some manner. So you have to leave it safely. You're not crashing, although you could put a crash in there. The idea is to make you behave correctly, to write code that behaves correctly. So if you had to put your, uh, your forecasters hat on, I know you like to wear a lot of hats. So put on your forecaster <laughs> hat, and tell us where Swift is, you know, five, 10 years out. You said it could be your programming language. Do you think it will come to dominate the programming landscape or do you think it'll always be, you know, inside Apple's bubble? I think it's already starting to leave Apple's bubble, like uh, because it was open source with Linux support. And since then, uh, some people at Facebook have made it work on Android and some people are working on making it work on Windows. So we're getting to this point where you could write your app in Swift for every major platform apart from the web. But you could write your server side in Swift. And someone's already made a Swift to JavaScript compiler. So you could write the front end in Swift as well if you trust mm. the, the compiler. I, uh, I don't know if I haven't really looked into it. So I really want it to be. I think it's a lovely language. And I'm not just saying that as someone who's been a bit of an Apple fanboy for so long. Like, I've been disappointed with Apple in many ways, not just because they work there. Uh, <laughs> I think MacOS is really in need of work, or at least some uh, hooks so that developers can change how it works. Like, I want to get rid of the dock. I want to get rid of the menu bar. I want to. I want to experiment with many different ways of making it a better platform for me. And like, I've been using Windows a lot lately, and I think Microsoft are doing a lot better with Windows 10 than Apple are doing with MacOS right now. Wow, that's a bold statement. From a long-time Apple fanboy. Yeah, well, I've switched. I was Linux, and then I switched to Mac because I got fed up with my Linux Wi-Fi drivers failing every time I upgraded my kernel. Yep. And uh, <laughs> Mac was Unix underneath. And now Windows 10 has uh, this Bash and Ubuntu interface I haven't tried yet. Mm. It, it can be Unix, and uh, that's the main thing that a lot of us want, at least, wow. the Unix system. So I'm pretty tempted by uh, Windows 10. But currently, all my projects are on Macs. I'm stuck there for now. You just bought you just bought a brand new MacBook Pro, though, so you're still yeah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I haven't said I haven't said I wouldn't. I did. <laughs> That's why you should never believe anything I say on Twitter <laughs> or podcasts, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah. well, as we're getting closer to the end of the show, Max, I know you got a couple things on your on your side you want to mention before we close out so i know you got a startup going on what uh, what's what's new for you what what do people not know about you these days well since i've been out of apple for no four months 
not very long. It feels like it was like day I handed in my resignation. I felt like such a weight off my shoulders. It was incredible. Uh, I decided I wasn't going to work for a big company again for sure. So I consider myself an indie now. So I've been trying to work on a few things to make myself independently financed. I don't want to be rich, I decided. I don't need to be rich. What I want to be doing is cool open source, being involved in the open source community, just trying to improve the world. Like the little bit I can improve, bits of software here and there. So I have I joined a, uh, a start with a friend, and we're doing music stuff, which I've always been interested in. And we have an app in the store right now called Mix Message, which is a iMessage app, and you can make a mixtape with a friend take turns, he, put, he or she puts a track in, you put a track in, keep going like that. It's fun, surprisingly yeah. fun. Huh. And we just, we whipped that up when the messaging apps came out because we thought it would be neat. What's the URL for it? Uh, it's mixmsg, I think, .com. But if you just type that in, it should turn up. It's unfortunately named in a respect that we didn't realize until afterwards is that Google always thinks you're talking about mixmag. Ah, uh, mm. autocorrect. Did you mean Mixmag? Yeah. I hate searches where there's like, did you mean or the audio correction? I'm like, no, I really meant to write what I wrote like three times now. <laughs> you stop correcting. <laughs> yeah, I just don't understand that. Don't I mean, I like autocorrect once. and it helps me a lot because I type fast sometimes, but it just drives me crazy when it's like, no, I clearly mean that acronym. I know it's weird, and all, but <laughs> I mean that. But once you've corrected it once, why would it try to correct it again? I don't, it's the same thing. Yeah, so it's M I X M S G, mixed message. Gotcha. It's nice. It's got real nice. Like, it's our, our team. We have a really good designer, and I'm doing the iOS. We have a cool backend guy, and then a good um, product guy. And we're also working on an app for local music that's going to be called Audio, A U D I Y O. And uh, we're hoping to have that beta this month. Actually, we're cranking it out, and it's about discovering local bands, local music near you. Something I'm somewhat passionate about. Like I've always, I've always felt that the music apps that exist aren't that good. And I uh, like Apple Music. Like it's just not very good. Beats was better. I don't know if you ever used Beats. Apple bought it and then ruined it. And Spotify. Oh, I just, uh, I don't. I'm not going to say anything bad about them. But I just, <laughs> what was the uh, the name again for this last one? Audio. A U D I Y O. It's audio with a Y. So it's like audio. We're hoping to have that out uh, a beta before Christmas, hopefully. Um, Is it a dot, but, dot com or somebody else who's who's the? I'm not sure we even have a website up yet, so you're gonna have to just wait. Okay, yeah. I was gonna say because I can't find it on the web, so I'm assuming that either somebody else has got it or uh, you said you love names, but then you said you hate them, so I'm. I'm... Well, uh, I didn't. I didn't name these things (laughs) that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) um and i'm working on something for homebrew i i don't think i'm gonna go back to the core but i just always have i always have a a notebook full of ideas tools i need and that's why that tweet is still pinned even though i'm not working at developer tools of apple anymore The, the foundation of the modern world is developer tools because i believe it it is and I love being a developer because we can make our own tools. It's like the only industry apart from maybe blacksmithing, and I'm not sure if they even do make their own tools, that we can make our own tools to improve our workflows, to make ourselves more efficient and productive. And uh, so I always have a notebook full of 
ideas for stuff. And this is one that I've been toying around with for a couple of years, and I'm really trying to make it now. And uh, yes, it has growlers in it. And I don't want to say anything more about it because I don't like to jinx myself. I feel like if I say things about some of the ideas I have that I then don't finish them. I really want to finish this one, though, also because I figured out how to make money with it. And that's what I want. I want to be able to work on open source full time. Well, I I can poke around on GitHub, and I did see slash Growler, G-R-O-W-L-E-R, which is a empty repo sitting there waiting. So if you're listening to this, maybe go watch that and or start at least or something to, to kind of keep up. I'm assuming that's it, right? That's part of it. There's no description. There's no there's no uh, message shared, so you're not being committed to your idea. Well, I needed the repo to exist for various reasons, but yeah, it's it's not going to be filled yet. Gotcha. I, I you know one of the things Apple do, I think they hammer into you. In fact, is surprise and delight, and I I agree. Right. Yeah. Well, Max, thank you so much for taking us down this uh, this trip of yours. I mean, I know that. Uh, You've got some history to you, and as you had said before, millions use software you've worked on, and so you've got some history with everyone listening to this, uh, at least those who use Mac OS. Uh, I use Humber all the time, so thank you for you know the work you put into that, and you know e- even the angst you had with pressing the button to share it back. I can <laughs> appreciate that and understand your feeling there, and and uh, just thank you for being the maintain you are and the software developer you are and, and the encourage you are, especially with that tweet to sort of change how people look at you know, the interviewing process. And that's going to be a huge help to, to many software developers out there for years to come. So I hope so. Any last words to, to share with us before we tell the call? No, I'm uh, I'm all good. Thanks for what you just said. It was very kind. Awesome. And uh, thanks for having me on. All right. Well, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we love you. If you don't subscribe to our weekly email, we would love for you to. So go to changelog.com slash weekly. Jared and I, we put in so much hard work into that email. And every single week, we, we scour the internet for mm-hmm. our favorites in open source and software development. And we do whatever we can to share that back in that email. Mm-hmm. Our latest episodes, our latest announcements. We're doing lots of fun stuff. We're growing. We're expanding. So if you like what we're doing with this show, check out requests for commits. Check out GoTime. Check out Founders Talk. We're bringing that back. We have a new show coming out very, very soon called Spotlight. So much fun stuff happening. And the place we announce all that fun stuff is at Changelog Weekly. So go to changelog.com slash weekly, subscribe to that. And uh, for those listeners who have been listening to the Changelog for years, back to Max's episode at 35, uh, subscribe to our master feed. Many of you love all we do. So just go to changelog.com slash master. It's our master feed. It's in iTunes, on Overcast. You get everything we do. So don't miss out. Mm-hmm. Don't be that person. Uh, and if you see this at a conference, high fives and hugs, okay? But, uh, fellas, that's it for this show. So let's say goodbye. Bye. Thanks, Max. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs>